Good morning. Uh, welcome. If this is your first time to Gateway, we are really glad to have you with us. Pastor Ed, our lead pastor, is out of town on vacation for the next three weeks, so please pray for him. Uh, he has a well-deserved break, and hopefully uh, we'll get some time to replenish and refresh. Uh, I'm Alex. I'm the associate pastor, and uh, we are continuing a series that we launched last week out of the book of Second Kings. And uh, the, the sermon series is called Turning Points. We're going to look at the various opportunities, the various forks in the road that eight kings who are found in the last section of Second Kings. So we're starting with Hezekiah, the king at the top left here, or top left over here. Uh, and we're going to talk about him today and see some lessons from his life in uh, looking at it. We're going we're to identify three turning points in his life, and then we're going to ask three questions out of each of those uh, situation. So I'm excited about it. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, interestingly, this is kind of weird, but uh, we have arranged for King Hezekiah to join us this morning. So I am hoping that you would give a warm welcome to King Hezekiah. Please. Wow, it is very exciting to uh, finally meet you. I, I'm, I really appreciate you coming, sir, sire. This is a very tiny scepter. Uh, well, actually, it's a, a microphone. If you could speak into it, that would be, that would be great. Oh, beautiful. Do I sit here? Uh, sure, please. Make yourself at home. <laughs> it's a very tiny throne. Uh, yes, you're, you're, you're right. It is a tiny, it's a terrible throne. I'm, I'm so sorry. Um, can, can I just say that's an awesome beard? Is that real? Oh, well, yeah, why, yes, it's Israel. It is real. Oh, good, good Father's Day joke. Yeah, <laughs> nice, nice job. So uh, even though it's a legit beard, you are pretty young. I understand you're, you're 25. That just seems like young to have the weight of an entire nation pressing on you. Yes, it is. But, uh, you know, I've been preparing this for my entire life. So, Okay. Well, that makes sense. Um, uh, today, for, for us in America, we call this Father's Day. Uh, we honor our fathers by buying them neckties and weird socks. Uh, I don't know if you have a, a similar tradition in your country, but could you tell us a little bit about uh, maybe your father and your mother? Yeah, my father, um, my father's name was Ahaz, and he was the king of Judah for 16 years. Um, he, was, he made some mistakes. He, uh, he drove us away from Yahweh. My mother, contrary to my father, um, her name was Abijah, and uh, she uh, was very faithful to Yahweh. Awesome. Well, we appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us, and uh, thank you. We look forward to learning more about you over the next couple of weeks. Thank you, King Hezekiah. Uh, again, thank you, King Hezekiah. Uh, thank uh, Yes. Uh, uh, thank you. Uh, yeah, we, we are, uh, are going to be looking at King Hezekiah's life for the next several weeks, and Hezekiah is a very interesting king. Um, as we learn about him, uh, one of the things that we want to keep in mind is that um, Hezekiah was one of the good kings. Most of these kings are not known for turning out so well for the nation of Judah. And uh, so we're, we're glad to be able to begin with him. I'm going to get this out of the way. 
Okay, uh, many of you are old enough to remember uh, a long time ago there was a commercial for hefty trash bags and they, uh, they had a, a well-dressed man and he's pulling a trash bag out of a trash container and he finally gets it free and it kind of explodes and it covers him with trash. And their tagline was, hefty, hefty, hefty. And does anybody remember what they said about the other trash bag companies? They were what? Exactly, yeah. So when it comes to trash bags, wimpy is not good. Or uh, maybe you've uh, been in a public place and you've had to blow your nose and you grab a Kleenex and you blow and then you realize it's a single-ply tissue. And it's just like gross. I mean, it just shouldn't, they shouldn't make those. Wimpy is not good when it comes to tissues either. And wimpy is terrible when it comes to our faith. God wants us to have a robust faith, and yet, I think especially for those of us in our country, in this part of the country, in our day and time, many, many people who consider themselves followers of Jesus Christ have a wimpy faith. It's just surface level. It's a fair-weather faith. They put it on for a couple of hours on Sunday. Or when things are going really well, like, whoa, praise the Lord, you know, I'm, I'm excited about this. But the reality is, once you dig below the surface, there's no substance to it. And when things get tough, their faith crumbles. I mean, a, a wimpy faith doesn't serve us well when things get tough. Uh, when, when calamity comes, and the Bible says that all of us will face trouble, tribulation. There are things that are going to happen to us that are beyond our means to handle. And when that comes, you don't want a wimpy faith. But a wimpy faith is also pretty worthless when things are going well for us. Because a wimpy faith leads us to think that all of the pleasantries, all of the stuff that I enjoy, all of the benefits that I have, they're probably because of me. It's because I work hard and I deserve it and I own it. A wimpy faith allows us to deceive ourselves. Another problem with a wimpy faith is we have people that are on the outside looking in, maybe skeptical or cynical, and they see us claim to have faith and then they watch what happens in the day of trouble and they realize, I don't want any part of that. That's just stupid. That's not real faith. They act just like everybody else when the chips are down. So um, we shouldn't be satisfied with uh, a surface level kind of faith, a fair weather faith. God wants us to have a resilient faith, a faith that grows and that shows up and holds up. In James chapter 1, we get some insight into where a robust faith comes from, the process that helps us to grow it. So take a look on the screen, and let me read this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So it's precisely through the hardship, through the difficulties and the trials, that we develop a mature and resilient faith. So uh, let me set the stage for you. If you um, we're, we're in 2 Kings. If you had one of these things, it's a kind of a timeline on the back of it. Uh, this may help you get an idea of, of where we're going with this series. Um, if you were to look at the history of, of Israel from maybe 3500 B.C. to the time of Christ, um, you would find that uh, in, in the Hebrews' view of things, everything builds up until about 1000 BC when King David is the king. And he's the high point in, in uh, Israel's 
history, in their military might, in their conquest, in their pursuit of God. And from there to the time of Christ, it's just a steady decline. And what you'll see, our, our timeline runs from uh, King Hezekiah's around 700. So we're, we're going, this time period is about 715 to 586. This is the period of these eight kings that we're going to study. And we're, we're looking at the decline of the people of God. Uh, and we want to learn from that, hopefully. Now, if you remember the map that we looked at last week, Assyria is the world's superpower at the time. And beneath them, to the south, is the Babylonian Empire. They are the rising power. And uh, Egypt, over on the southwest side of things, they have been a superpower, but they're declining. And Canaan, the area where Israel is, along the Mediterranean Sea, that is kind of the crossroads. Uh, Assyria and Babylonia don't go through the arid desert region to the south. They go along that area of Canaan, along the Mediterranean Sea. That's, that's where you have to go to conquer anything. So uh, if you were to zoom in a little bit on that area along the Mediterranean Sea, and, and here's the Mediterranean Sea over here, uh, and then uh, in the northern part is uh, the Sea of Galilee, and then the Dead Sea is in the middle of Israel. Uh, when King David was the king, this territory went all the way up north to the Euphrates River and all the way down uh, south over towards Egypt. Uh, and then over time, after 1000 BC, it began to diminish. And there was a civil war and uh, we have a, a, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And so they're just a fraction of what used to be. And then in addition, we've got a little portion here where the Philistines were. You'll remember Samson fought the Philistines. And then up here is the Phoenicians. They also had power. So you get this idea that the people of God, their territory and their influence is shrinking. And finally, around 722, this northern kingdom, which is called Israel, is no longer. And that leaves us with King Hezekiah, who is the king of Judah, in this lower territory. That's where we're camping out today, the life of King Hezekiah. Now, uh, Hezekiah, uh, his story is not the kind of story like, a long time ago in a land far away, there was a man, and his name was Hezekiah. It's not, it's not like this fanciful tale. It is anchored in history. So we have plenty of, of other passages in the Bible from First and Second Chronicles, or there are six different prophets that are operating in the time of, of Second Kings here. So we have other places where we can get more details about what's going on in the lives of these kings. But we don't have to limit ourselves to the Bible itself. There's archaeology and there are the writings of other people, including the Assyrians, that attest to the veracity of these stories. So this isn't a, a fictional story that uh, somebody claims as mythology, uh, it's history. On the other hand, it's not supposed to be a comprehensive history. Some kings get a paragraph, and other kings get a couple of chapters, and Hezekiah is one of the guys that gets a little bit more. So let's uh, get a thumbnail sketch of the life of King Hezekiah. This is in 2 Kings chapter 18, just the first couple of verses. It says, in the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel. Remember, Israel is the northern kingdom, and uh, for every king, we're going we're gonna to get them talking about, like, here's who's the king in Israel, and here's what's happening in Judah. Here's the king in Judah, here's what's happening in Israel. So, the third year, while Hosea is the king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name 
was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. Now, uh, any time in that second paragraph you see Lord capitalized, that's kind of, that's a way that we remind ourselves that when the Hebrews wrote this, they were referring to Yahweh, which was the proper name of God. Uh, sometimes Jehovah in English, that's how we would say it. Same letters. And so, uh, Hezekiah trusted in Yahweh, the God of Israel. That's his proper name. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, the southern kingdom, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord, and he did not stop following. He kept the commands the Lord, or Jehovah, had given to Moses. So he stands out among all of the kings of the southern kingdom because he stays faithful to Yahweh. Now when we look at the very beginning of his reign, we find very quickly, we see his faith in motion. His faith becomes visible, it's obvious, it's evident as soon as he takes the throne. So verse 3 tells us, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord just as his father had done. Now remember, David was the king at the peak of Israel's history. So instead of saying, uh, so his dad is Ahaz, uh, the writers go all the way back to the high point in the life of Israel and says, Hezekiah, he was that kind of king, like King David, his ancestor. And the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria, and he did not serve him. From watchtower to fortified city, he defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory. Gaza, you will probably recognize that name because it's still a very narrow strip of land in the southwest portion of our map here, and, and lots of conflict still goes on in that area today. So, in spite of the bad example that his father Ahaz had set, Hezekiah does a 180, and he restores uh, the rightful worship that, due, that is due Yahweh. He destroys all the high places, and those were literally a, a hilltop or a mountaintop, a high area where uh, a shrine or an altar was built to a false god. He says in a very convincing way to his people, this is no longer acceptable. We're not going to do that. He smashes and destroys idols and symbols of foreign gods. He even smashes the bronze snake that Moses had made uh, and, and the people of Israel had kept as a historical artifact to remind them of God's faithfulness to them while they wandered in the wilderness. But uh, during his father's reign, the people had turned it into an idol, and they actually worshipped it instead of God. So Hezekiah's faith is active and vibrant, and he aggressively gets rid of anything that hinders the spiritual health of his people or that interferes in their worship of God. And militarily, he pushes the Philistines out of the territory <clears throat> from the remote outposts to the most fortified cities. He's crushing the opposition in that region. So verse 7 gives us a great summary of this stage in Hezekiah's life. And 2 Kings 18 verse 7. Sorry. It says, <laughs> Yahweh was with him, and he was successful in every endeavor. So because he was faithful to God, because he had this resilient faith that showed up, God was pleased with him, and God blessed him. Now, a question that comes out of this passage is fairly natural, is like, okay, but if his dad was so bad, his dad was a despicable king who even uh, worshipped a god who required child sacrifices. How did uh, that kind of a father generate 
the kind of, of son who would rule a kingdom with this much devotion to God? Well, uh, one possibility, it could have been his mother. And depending on which Zechariah was her father, I, there was a Zechariah who was a high priest at the time. So if that was uh, Hezekiah's great uh, if that was his grandfather, you could kind of understand, oh, maybe there was an influence and maybe his mother was the one who kind of helped him stay on track with Yahweh, even though his father's rule uh, pursued other gods. Uh, or it could have been a household servant or a tutor or somebody else influential in his life and we will never know that person's name. I, I think that happens a lot of times where we, we see people who are walking with God and they're their faith is vibrant, and we don't know the story behind it, but we know somebody invested in them. Uh, I think of the people that are upstairs and downstairs right now working with our children in Kidstown. And you may not ever know their names, but they're pouring into your kids, helping them develop a love for God's Word and helping them understand that, that Jesus loves them and wants to forgive them and make a huge difference in their life could be that maybe God is calling some of us to be influencers in those little lives. Or maybe some of you who are grandparents just need a little reminder that God intends to use you in a powerful way to influence your grandchildren. As you listen to them, as you pray for them, as you tell them what God has been doing in your life, maybe you're that behind-the-scenes person in someone else's life. Whatever the source, Hezekiah's faith showed up, and it should be the same way for us. Our faith is not supposed to be something that's invisible to the people around it. And it's not just general agreement with some vague philosophical principles. And it's not something we do at certain times of the week. It's supposed to be a life-changing relationship with God. It's supposed to be us um, walking and aligning our lives with the life of Christ and what he epitomized. Because of what he did on the cross to buy our forgiveness, we can have a relationship with God. And we can have his power at work within our lives. And it should make a difference in the way that uh, we handle our friendships and our marriages and our business. So, this is a really strong start for young Hezekiah. But let's press on in the story. Verse 9 tells us that when Hezekiah is 29... Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, invades Israel. And remember, this is the, the northern kingdom. And he ransacks, he, he sieges the capital city of Samaria. It takes him three years to destroy Samaria. But when he is done, that's it. There is no more northern kingdom. Israel is done. And we're told in verse 12 that this happened because they, the Israelites in the northern territory, had not obeyed the Lord their God, but it violated his covenant, all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. They neither listened to the commands nor carried them out. So Hezekiah is 32. I don't think he's delighting in the misfortune that has uh, befallen his neighbors to the north, but I think he is probably feeling like, wow, I'm so glad that I am following God. I'm, I'm obeying the commands of Moses. I, I haven't violated the covenant. I'm trying to lead my people in the right direction. And at 32... Uh, he's feeling like the future is bright for us. Time goes by, and in the land of Assyria, Shalmaneser is followed by King Sargon II, and then Sennacherib. And it's Sennacherib 
the king of Assyria, who introduces to Hezekiah the concept of faith under pressure. So his faith has been visible, it's shown up, but now it's faith under pressure. And starting in verse 13, 2 Kings tells us, it was the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign. So he's 39, okay? He's got some, some years and experience under his belt. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. I mean, these are, these are the strongholds. These are the, the fortresses cities that are supposed to uh, defend the country against invaders. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent this message to the king of Assyria, who was at Lachish, and said, I've done wrong. Withdraw from me, and I will pay whatever you demand of me. The king of Assyria exacted from Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Um, we don't know precisely uh, how much silver and gold were worth back then, but if it were in today's market, that's well over $100 million. Uh, so it was a pretty uh, substantial economic impact. And clearly, Sennacherib was trying to hurt Judah with enough of an economic smackdown that they wouldn't be able to even consider rebelling again or, or mounting a war to fight back against Assyria. So, uh, it's so difficult for Hezekiah to raise all the funds to do this that he has to empty his own treasury and the temple treasury, and then he has to take the gold overlay on the doors and doorposts of the temple, and he strips those off in order to be able to meet this demand. This is another turning point for Hezekiah. I mean, he knows from personal experience, seeing his dad's kingdom, that uh, submitting to Assyria is not something that serves the people of God well. It's not going to end well for Judah if he does this. And he knew better than to make treaties with pagan nations. In Exodus 23 and 24, I'm sorry, 23 and 34, God had made it clear that his people were not to make covenants with foreign lands or their gods or with their people. He didn't want them to uh, become comfortable with foreign gods or the worship of them. And Hezekiah could have gone to the prophet Isaiah if he'd wanted to get spiritual advice or he wanted uh, Isaiah to intercede with God and to help him pray or figure out uh, what God wanted. And Hezekiah doesn't do any of that. Hezekiah, in short blows it. He messes up. He capitulates. He tries to appease the enemy. He leans on his own understanding instead of trusting in the Lord with all his heart. He walks by sight instead of walking by faith. Let's be honest. I mean, most of the time, that's what we do. We, we talk a pretty good talk, but when the chips are down and there's an argument at home or a parenting issue, or a financial challenge, or there's a problem at work, or a financial crisis, or an overwhelming load, we immediately jump to panic mode, and we try to figure out, what can I do to fix this? What can I do to, to remove the immediate threat, to get rid of the, the pressure? How can, I, how can I escape? What's the easiest way to fix this? Instead of us leaning in the direction of our faith, or praying, or turning to God's Word, we do what Hezekiah does. Some of you were here last week uh, and heard Becky Bellino's story. Uh, if you haven't, I'd really encourage you to go back and listen to the recording, watch the video. Uh, she shared about uh, a number of heartaches and disappointments and struggles and challenges 
that she has faced in the last two or three decades. And uh, she would tell you that the only way she was able to do that was because in the difficult times, she had a resilient faith to rely on. And that's the very reason we need a resilient faith. When we're under pressure, resilient faith drives us to God. And we, we have an enduring, an elastic faith, a growing faith that allows us uh, to remember passages like these in 2 Corinthians. So Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, we're troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. There will be pressure, but we don't have to cave. Or uh, in the next chapter, he says, we walk by faith, not by sight. Let's be clear. God is not expecting us to execute perfectly on everything. He realizes we're going to blow it. We're going to make mistakes. There will be uh, opportunities that we have, and, and we don't make the right decision. But here's the thing. God's mercy is new every morning. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from unrighteousness. If, if we acknowledge that we made a mistake, he's quick to forgive us and to give us a fresh start, and he will walk with us. So a resilient faith means that when we blow it, we admit it, and we start fresh again with God. I'm sure that Hezekiah was hoping that once he paid this ransom, things were going to settle down, and, and life was going to get back to normal, and uh, everything was going to be wonderful. But sadly, that was not the case. And it's, it's right after he pays this ransom and uh, Assyria has the money uh, that he finds the most extreme pressure he will face. And his faith is under fire. So let's talk about faith under fire. Because the next thing happened is King Sennacherib sends a massive army and three of his top commanders to surround Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah. And he sends... Uh, uh, these three commanders and Hezekiah sends out three representatives from his government to meet them. Verse 19 says, The field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says, On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have the counsel and the might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? And then this commander just kind of runs through a laundry list. Oh, you think you're going to depend on Egypt? No, 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 they're not going to rescue you. You think King Hezekiah is going to be able to pull this off? Not going to happen. You think your God's going to deliver you? No way. Hezekiah just chopped down all of the idols and he destroyed the high places that allowed you to worship your God. That wasn't true, but it does show that this field commander knew something about the worship of God's people in Judah. He even taunts them by saying, okay, you guys are so weak, I'll give you 2,000 horses, and if you can find riders for them, come on out and we'll have a fight. But, but you don't have any hope in this. And then uh, in verse 26, we're told that Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, Shebna, and Joah, these are the representatives of Hezekiah, they say to the field commander, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. We would prefer that our folks not get worried by what you're saying. Well, not surprisingly, this, uh, this field commander uh, is not really agreeable to that. He says, was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things and not to the people sitting on the wall who, like you, will have to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine? 
So, I mean, he's trying to make it really clear, like, no, no, this is deadly serious. I'm telling you how this is going to happen. Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, so everyone would understand. Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you from my hand. I mean, this is a well-crafted, trash-talking, psychological warfare kind of speech, and it goes on and on and on. Hey, don't let your king deceive you. Don't believe him. He doesn't have the power he thinks he does. He's misleading you. Instead, you should make peace with me. And yes, you're going to be exiled. I'll take you to another land, but you'll be eating actual food. And you'll have a life of some sort. So just come on out, surrender to me, and things will go much better than you. And his final appeal is, hey, has the God of any country ever been able to deliver his people from the Assyrians? Like, we are so tough, no one has ever been able to stand up against us. And the chapter ends with the people of Judah listening to all of this, but they remain silent because the king ahead of time told them, don't say anything. And his, his three representatives who have been out meeting with the three officers from Assyria, they come back inside the wall and they rip their clothes as a sign of their despair and their grief and their mourning. And they go to King Hezekiah and report all that they've heard. Now the question for this section is, what's Hezekiah going to do? I mean, if you look at his track record, he started strong and then he choked. I don't know, maybe, maybe he's just going to try to pacify the Assyrians again. Maybe he's going to say, oh, I don't want to eat what they're telling us we're going to have to eat. Let's just surrender and we'll go with them. Or is he going to choose to follow God? Is he going to choose to put his faith in God and let that drive his decisions? Well, we don't know. That's a cliffhanger. You're going to have to come back next week and find out what happens in chapter 19. But This is a fork in the road. This is a a decision point, a turning point for Hezekiah. And we all have to wrestle with that same kind of question. Maybe it's not today, but it could be today. It could be this week. It could be this month or this season in your life. God is going to put a turning point in front of you, and you're going to be under immense pressure. And you need to make a decision now about how you're going to handle it. You don't have to wait for a crisis to develop resilient faith. There are things you can do proactively in order to get ready for it. Think of like uh, uh, getting ready, preparing for an epic adventure or training for a marathon. You You don't just think about it and then show up and just run 26 miles. You do things now to get ready for what is ahead. So maybe you do a self assessment. Where are you growing in your faith? And, and where are you tired? Where are you getting off track? Uh, are you investing more and more time in prayer or your personal devotional life? Are, are you taking advantage of community and being around other people who are following Christ? Or are you growing increasingly isolated? What are the areas of your life where you tend to walk more by sight and you think you don't need God's help? Is God kind of poking and pointing out any opportunities for growth in your spiritual life. And if you just kind of took a step and, you know, thought of it as an opportunity for growth, maybe you'd recognize it. Uh, God wants us to have a resilient faith. He really does. But we have to participate with him in that. Job 17.9 gives us an encouraging final word. It says, the righteous keep moving forward. And those with clean hands 
become stronger and stronger. So those that are committed to God, they, they keep moving forward. They don't step back. They keep pushing ahead. And those with clean hands and pure hearts, they grow stronger and stronger. Uh, my dad grew up uh, in Baltimore a long time ago. His granddad was a Methodist minister. And so my dad uh, grew up in a household that had some faith to it. He grew up and he went to church and, uh, you know, that was just part of their life. And when my parents got married, I grew up in a family. Uh, I, I'm, you know, probably have a skewed recollection as a kid, but I remember us going to church every Sunday. We put on our Sunday best. And I was always, uh, as the youngest kid, the one in the back of our tiny little subcompact car that had to sit in the middle, you know, because I had an older brother and sister. And um, uh, so we went to church, but my dad was... My dad, you know, made it clear that work was really important and responsibility and getting things done, that was really important. And, and doing what you say you're going to do, that was really important. And being frugal, that was another really important thing. You couldn't spend a lot of money on, on stuff. Uh, and then maybe a little below that was things like faith and, you know, other, other stuff that was important. Um, so that's kind of how I grew up. And then uh, when my dad was in his mid-40s, our family uh, had to move uh, 1,500 miles away from Richmond, Virginia to southeast Texas, Beaumont, Texas, kind of where oil fields are, a lot of the refineries are in that area. And uh, that sort of rocked our world as a family. Uh, my dad was an East Coast guy and lived there his whole life. My mom, same thing. So we end up in Texas, and the great thing about this was we ended up at a church. And that was the church where uh, God really did a lot in our family. That's where I felt called into ministry and where I first served on a church staff. It's also the church where my dad uh, slowly became involved in a men's Bible study. And then my dad, uh, after that, he got involved in a, a personal evangelism uh, activity. Every week there were some people that would get together and they would go out and share their faith with other people. And then uh, my dad retired, and he joined a very select group of older men in the church. Uh, they would get together every Wednesday morning about 8.30, and they would have coffee, and they would pray, and they would do a lot of talking, and then they would decide what they were going to fix for the Wednesday night church supper. And if you've ever lived in the South, you know what a Wednesday night church supper is. That's uh, the, the meal you eat when you're coming from work because you've got choir practice and prayer meeting and youth group and mission activities. Everything that didn't happen on Sunday happened on Wednesday night. And these guys carved out their whole day to prepare for the church this meal. And it could be spaghetti or it could be hamburgers or it might be mac and cheese or whatever. That was, those were big decisions that somebody had to wrestle with and these guys jumped in to do that. But um, that was about the same time in my dad's life. Um, he was actually the same age I am now when he had his first stroke. And it was a massive stroke. We didn't know if he was going to survive. He ended up uh, disabled, and over the next 25 years, he had more and more strokes, and he lost more of his physical and cognitive abilities. But what's weird about that is, as his physical condition was declining, his spiritual growth, his faith was expanding. And he was able to trust God more and more. So, uh, 20 years later, when he moved back to the East Coast and he joined another church, they asked him if he would join uh, basically their elder board, what we have at Gateway as elders. And um, he was able to serve his church in that way. I never, in all those years after my dad suffered the stroke, I never heard him uh, 
blame God or disappointed at God or bitter about it. If anything, it made him very creative and determined that he was going to figure out how to do his life in spite of whatever uh, impact the strokes had made on him. And he, he was cheerful and he was really committed in his faith. Well, that's the kind of faith I want to have. I mean, I, I want a faith that shows up. I, I want a kind of faith that holds up no matter what, the, what the, the external circumstances are. I want a faith that doesn't give up. And God wants all of us to have that kind of faith. Let's pray. God, uh, I thank you that, that you do not intend for us to live this life on our own. You, you sent Jesus precisely so that we could have a restored relationship with you, a do-over, a, a fresh start. And if there are people here today who are in the middle of challenging circumstances, if they're under pressure, I pray that you would help them to understand that you, Lord Jesus, are ready and waiting to receive them and to, to come into their life and to, to let your power be at work, uh, sustaining them, encouraging them, directing them. In any group this size, God, I know there are people that are under pressure right now, maybe under fire, and I ask that you would be at work there. Help them to lean in the direction of their faith. Help them to trust you and not allow the circumstances to overwhelm them. I pray for, for those of us who are not under uh, pressure right now that we would have eyes to see the people around us who need encouragement and help. Help us to come alongside them. And if things are going great for us, then God, help us to make the preparations now that would allow us to grow a resilient faith so that when calamity comes, when, when trouble confronts us, our faith is strong and robust and hefty. It's resilient. And we can honor you. And we can uh, let the people around us know that our God delivers us. Be with us this week, Lord. I ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.